Let me, before we get started, let me pass along some uh, tidbits for you. Uh, some good books out on Revelation. Uh, now, I know a popular one with lay people, Swindoll. Has anybody, now this is L.G. Eve's book. Where's there? L.G.? There he is. Uh, Swindoll's new series on the New Testament. Uh, he's got one out on Revelation. That will prove to be very, very popular among lay people. Didn't bring them in here with me, but John MacArthur has uh, its two volumes on the book of Revelation. A very popular expositor. I like John MacArthur because in many ways, in some aspects, John MacArthur uh, would identify very much with the Reformed camp with uh, end time studies, eschatology. He's more dispensational. I think he's got a pretty good balance between the Reformed camp and dispensational camp and so forth. I find myself identifying with John MacArthur a lot. Uh, they're maroon hardback volumes. Does anybody in here have MacArthur's? You know what I'm talking about? You do? Uh, very detailed expositions. And so John MacArthur, you want to write that down, and it's M-A-C capital A-R-T-H-U-R. John MacArthur. And uh, that's a, a very good series as well. Uh, one of the newest books on Revelation out is this one by Dr. Paige Patterson. And uh, had an opportunity to talk to him Monday night in person. Uh, we were together in meetings there at the Baptist headquarter buildings in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a, a part of the executive committee. And all the seminary presidents were there as well and agency heads. And he, of course, is the president of Southwestern Seminary. Was, he was at Southeastern. He's moved to uh, Southwestern. And uh, uh, I, heard, uh, I heard it said that he had studied and read 1,500, 1,500 commentaries and works on the book of Revelation. I asked him uh, Monday night, I said, is that true? He said, yep, I've read from every swipe and persuasion there is on the book. And he'll pretty much, in the footnotes at least, tell you what everybody says. Uh, he would be a, a pre-trib, pre-millennialist, pre-trib, pre-millennialist, and I share that view. And uh, anyway, very good uh, commentary outs just been released. And again, the benefit of that in his footnotes you're also going to hear what a lot of others believe, okay? A uh, guy out of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, Grant Osborne. Uh, very good uh, academic commentary on Revelation. Uh, he, he does handle Revelation 20 from a premillennial perspective. I have a feeling he's probably not pre-trib, pre-millennial. I have a feeling he's post-trib, pre-millennial, which is the historical pre-millennial position. I do have a couple of issues with how he interprets things, and I'll talk about that tonight when we get under the ah-millennial perspective because he has some things in common also with ah-millennialists. So anyway, but a very, very good commentary. One that will be much more popular too with lay people would be this one by Edward Henson, 
Revelation Unlocking the Future, Ed Henson, H-I-N-S-O-N. And uh, he, he gives you details, but yet he, he writes very much on a layman's perspective. So that would be an excellent one. Probably the classic uh, pre-trib, pre-millennial, in fact dispensational uh, angle on the book of Revelation would be this one by John Walvoord. He spells it W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. He was at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is probably the classic work on the dispensational pre-trib, pre-millennial perspective. Ray Summers, one of our uh, Southern Baptist scholars from years past, who's passed away now, Ray Summers, commentary, Worthy is the Lamb, the Amillennial Perspective, and George Ladd, L-A-D-D, George Ladd, would be probably the classic on the historical premillennial perspective, which is the post-trib premillennial perspective. Again, don't worry, we'll talk about all that tonight, okay? But uh, some very, very good resources out these days uh, on Revelation. So uh, take your pick. Don't, I'm, I'm going to count these things. One, two, three, four, five. I'm going to make sure five are still here when y'all leave tonight. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> okay. Chapter one. Let's get started tonight. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And we probably will go tonight all the way up till 10 till or 5. That clock up there is not right. Fortunately, it's fast. It's 10 after 7. We'll go to at least 10 till 8, maybe 5 till 8 before we close in prayer. Uh, tonight, I am kind of, I'm going to go slow tonight. Lay the foundation. Talk about just some introductory matters. Um, introductory matters to some people kind of bore them, put them to sleep. You know, it's like, uh, now I love reading the introductions in your study Bible and all, getting all the facts about authorship and main themes and all that. For some people, that bores them. They just want to get to the preaching. Uh, we won't get to the preaching tonight. We're going to do more of that laying the foundation and just kind of handling a lot of that. And... Uh, a lot of information I'm giving you tonight in the Wednesday night crowd will tell you that normally I put PowerPoint up. Uh, there was so much detail to give you tonight that I knew we'd have 50 PowerPoint slides, so I just put most of it in print for you, okay? So you have that in print. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And then over at verse 19, write therefore the things that you've seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now, as we begin our study of the book of Revelation, let me ask you each week, whether it is on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, that you would always bring your Bible as we study the Word of God together. 
I believe that's very important. Now, uh, as I say tonight, we're just simply going to cover the introduction. And we're going to be setting the table for what we'll be looking at in weeks to come. You know, each book of the Bible is important, but the book of Revelation has the distinction of being the consummation of God's revelation. The consummation of God's revelation of the 66 books in the canon of Scripture. Now there are many things that we simply would not know about the future if it were not for the book of Revelation. It's the only truly prophetic book in the New Testament. I didn't say there's not prophecy in the New Testament. It's the only truly prophetic book in the New Testament. Whereas the Old Testament would have many prophetic books. The uh, major and minor prophets. The, uh, three major, uh, the, the three major prophets and twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament. But this is the only truly prophetic book in the New Testament. Now, according to the book itself, the author is John. From chapter 1, verse 4, verse 9, and from chapter 22, verse 8. Now, not only the book itself, but also early tradition is pretty well unanimous that the apostle John is the author. There have been some other suggestions. They've not really caught traction at all. Uh, one recent one, believe it or not, some have tried to say maybe it's John the Baptist who's the author. Another one would be John the Elder, who's really an unknown John from the New Testament time that we just really don't know much about. But there's not really been any type of traction on any others other than the Apostle John. He was the son of Zebedee and his family were prosperous fishermen. Matthew chapter 4, I read that Sunday that James and John were with their father mending the nets and fishing when Jesus called them to be disciples. And so he along with James and Simon Peter had a very special relationship with Jesus. They were among the twelve apostles. Uh, but not only among the twelve, but they were that inner circle of three. Now there's some differences in style between Revelation and John's uh, other writings. The Gospel of John, for instance, is more polished. But on Patmos, John would not have had a secretary in the writing of Revelation. Uh, the differences in Revelation and John's other books are insignificant and certainly don't lead to the conclusion that the same man uh, could not have written them all. Okay, In fact, there's some striking parallels between Revelation and John's other writings. Only John's gospel and Revelation refer to Jesus Christ as, quote, the Word. The Word. The Word was made manifest and dwelt among us. Only John, gospel of John, Revelation refer to Jesus that way. Also, Revelation 1-7 uh, and John's gospel translates Zechariah 12.10 differently than the Septuagint, but identical with one another. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, it's, it's widely acknowledged today that the Septuagint version was the Bible of the Apostles. And... Uh, 
Revelation 1.7 and John's Gospel translate Zechariah 12.10 differently than the Septuagint, but identical to one another. And only John's Gospel and the book of Revelation describe Jesus Christ as being the Lamb, and both describe Jesus as being a witness. Now, Revelation was written during the last decade of the first century, somewhere between, in all probability, A.D. 94 and to 96. And so that puts it near the end of Emperor Domitian's reign of terror. He reigned from A.D. 81 to 96. Some have tried to put it earlier during Nero's reign, reign which would be uh, A.D. 54 to 68. But there's some problems with the early date. I think I gave those to you on the pages there. Number one, the spiritual decline of the seven churches argues itself for a later date. It seems likely that the second generation of Christians already were beginning to lose their fervency over some of the convictions the first generations of Christians tenaciously held to. Second problem with an early date would be the later date also gives time for the development of the heretical sect known as the Nicolaitans. We'll meet the Nicolaitans when we get into uh, Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. Now, this sect was apparently unknown during the Apostle Paul's day. And it's assumed that if the Nicolaitans were around, Paul would have surely addressed uh, that sect. It's interesting that Paul didn't address it even though he addressed the church at Ephesus just like John did in Revelation 2. And also the late date allows for the time needed for John's witness to grow to the point that the authorities felt the need to banish him. Now tradition says that John settled in Ephesus where he was later arrested and banished under the emperor Domitian to Patmos to work there in the mines. As I mentioned Sunday, Patmos was an island, kind of like our Alcatraz used to be, an island that set out in the, in, in, off the coast of Asia Minor, set out in the Mediterranean. It was 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, and it was kind of a slave labor camp. Uh, the Roman authorities banished him there because of his faithful preaching of the Word of God. Now, when he was arrested, John was ministering in Ephesus, ministering to the church there and in the surrounding cities of Asia Minor. Now, hoping to strengthen them, although he could no longer be with them in, because he was in, in prison, of course, and following the command in verse 11 of chapter 1 to write to them, he does so. He addresses them. Now, some have wondered about why seven churches. Why not 15? Why not 20? Why not two? Well, in the Bible, seven is a number of completeness. In Asia Minor, uh, there were seven key churches there on the postman's route. And as we study those seven churches, we will see that there are things going on in those churches just about every aspect of church life, either good or bad, will be covered in one of those letters. And so the things that those churches faced, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, uh, all of those things showed up in those seven churches. 
Now some have tried to say, and there's some merit in it, although I don't buy into the school of thought 100%. It's very popular among the more uh, strident dispensationalists that each of those seven churches stands for a period of time in church history. And so they would say that today we're in the Laodicean church period. We're neither cold nor hot, we're lukewarm. And the dispensational scholars go through those seven churches, assign dates that each of those church periods began and ended all the way down to the current time. And uh, you can certainly see some principles in what they say that I think you would have to affirm. But whether or not that's the meaning that we're supposed to get out of those seven, that really goes beyond what the scripture says. And when you're dogmatic about something that goes beyond what the scripture says, you can find yourself uh, in trouble. So, but anyway. Now, these churches had begun to feel the effects of persecution. According to Revelation 2.13, one man, perhaps a pastor had already been martyred for the faith. But the full fury of persecution was about to break loose on these seven churches and so to them the book of Revelation would have provided tremendous hope. And that, would, that hope would be found in this, that despite world affairs, who's still in control? God's still in control. And we have the assurance in the book of Revelation that wicked men and wicked times are not going to go on forever and ever and ever. God is going to vindicate His children. He's going to reward them and He's going to judge the unrighteous. And eventually He's going to judge Satan and take Satan out of the picture altogether. And so to those going through suffering, it would be a great encouragement not to lose their hope. Now, Revelation assures the reader, again, that God is in control of history, much like we see in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel from chapter 2 on, we see those main world empires that Daniel prophesies about. And throughout history, we see that those are exactly the empires that have come to power and have passed away. The book of Daniel really shows that God is sovereign over history. History is His story. Things aren't just taking place by accident and running wild out of control. The book of Revelation shows us the same thing. God's in control. Now the book of Revelation is generally interpreted in one of four ways. First of all is the preterist view. Preterist is from a Latin word that means past. And so those who hold to this position say that the book has already been completely fulfilled. Everything in the book describes events and trials of the early church with the entire book being fulfilled by the time of Constantine, the emperor Constantine in AD 312. And they would say that nothing in the book really applies to us today. They would say that chapters 5 to 11 describe the church's victory over Judaism. Chapters 12 to 19 describe the church's victory over pagan Rome. 
And chapters 20 to 22 describe the church's glory because of these victories. The preterist view. And then there's the historical or the continuous historical view. Now this school of interpretation states that in the book there is a a panorama of the history of the church from the days of John until the end of the age. And so the book has explained things in church history right up to our own current day. Now those who see it this way claim that they see in Revelation such things as um, the rise of the papacy, the corruption in the church, and the various wars through church history. Now, unfortunately for them, among those who buy into this school of interpretation, there is virtually no agreement over anything. Because one will read some event in Revelation and and try to pair it up with something in history and say, aha, this is it. And somebody else comes along and says, no, why do you say that? This event refers to this. And so you end up with all sorts, just a plethora of different interpretations uh, of the book of Revelation. Then there's the idealist view. This approach sees in Revelation simply a pictorial unfolding of great principles. In other words, the events in Revelation don't really mean anything. The book is just a fanciful and fictitious portrayal of the battle of good versus evil. If I were to ask you to go home tonight and just write a fictitious story and bring it next week and turn it in for homework, an engaging story about good versus evil and evil eventually winning. And and I'd say just be creative in your writing. That's what this school of thought says. Uh, You'd have characters, you would have events in the story that you would never intend to be identified with anything real or specific. But again, that's the idealist school. And then fourthly, there is the futurist or normal interpretation school of thought. Now the label futurist is derived from the fact that this school interpretation sees the book from Revelation 4 until the end as primarily talking about events yet future. We know that no judgments in human history that we're aware of have ever equaled those in chapters 6, 8, 9, and 16. And when we get to those chapters, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There has been nothing in history that has equaled that. The resurrections and judgments in chapter 20 have not yet happened. You hadn't been a part of the first resurrection yet, have you? Did it happen and nobody told you? And there's been no visible return of Christ yet like that described in chapter 19. And so those who, ta- who interpret the book this way take it more literally. They insist that we're to take the plain sense of the book. Now, it is not as though... That those of us who look at the book this way don't account for symbols, we do. 
we recognize that there are many symbols in the book of Revelation, but we just believe the symbols convey a plain sense meaning rather than fanciful meanings. When, when Jesus said that he was the door into the sheepfold, do any of you, do, do any of you see a wooden or a metal structure that Jesus is saying he's this metal wooden structure? No. You know, he's talking in symbolic ter terms. What's a door? A door is a way in and a way out, right? He said, I'm the door into the sheepfold. And so those who take the Bible literally, we recognize symbols, but we interpret those symbols according to their literal meaning. Another example would be Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verse 18 prophesied the casting of lots for Christ's garment. That was a literal statement. Then in verses 12 to 13 of that psalm, the enemies of the Lord are described as being strong bulls and ravening lions. Were they bulls and lions? No. But we know what it means to have men described as strong bulls and ravening lions. And so again, these are, these are symbols with a very plain meaning. And the Futurist School of Interpretation recognizes that, that it's a book of symbols, and you interpret those symbolically, but with the natural, normal understanding of that symbol. Now, sometimes John's going to describe an image being like something or as something. It's plain. He's making a comparison. He's drawing a picture. Well, there's going to be some things, number one, some things to remember as we study Revelation. Number one, it is the book of the revelation of and by the Lord Jesus. The King James Version says the revelation of St. John the Divine. Now, of course, you know that the titles of the books of the Bible were not part of the inspired manuscripts. And the title given there is not accurate. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine. As the text says there beginning in verse 1, it is the revelation of Jesus. The apocalypsis. And as I mentioned Sunday, that word means an uncovering, an unveiling or disclosure. Showing us that the book of Revelation isn't simply meant to be locked away in some closet, never read or understood. God intends us to understand some things about the future from the book of Revelation. Now this same word is used in the New Testament. This apocalypsis word is used of the disclosure of the sons of God in Revelation 8.19. That there's going to be the unveiling or the revealing of the sons of God. In Romans 16.25 it's used of the uncovering of spiritual truth. And so in all of its uses, it refers to something that was once hidden that becomes visible or is made visible. Now as I mentioned Sunday, Jesus is the central figure of the book of Revelation. I think one of the great temptations and challenges of the book of Revelation is, is that reminder that we've got to keep Jesus before our eyes as we begin looking at all the seals being broken and then the trumpets being blown and then the bowls of wrath being poured out and all of those things describe 
uh, crescendo movement of judgments. You have the seals. The breaking of the seventh seal leads into the trumpets. The blowing of the seventh one leads into the bowls. It's like standing on an ocean uh, on, on, on the beach and the tide's coming in. Once we get in chapter 6 and following, those seals and trumpets and bowls, it's going to be an ever-growing crescendo of judgments being poured out on the world. And it would be so easy in chapter 6 to 19 to just get caught up, get down in the muck and mire of all that and lose sight of the main theme of the book. The main theme is Jesus. Okay? And Christ is the master conductor of all the events that are spelled out. And we're going to see that in chapter 5. When the lamb, having been slain, walks up to the one on the throne, takes the scroll out of his hand. Nobody else was found worthy to take the scroll. He takes the scroll and, and to him is given the authority to begin breaking the seals, unrolling it, and executing all the judgments that take place on the earth. That authority and power is given to Jesus Christ to execute everything that takes place. We've got to remember what the Bible says. God has put judgment into the hands of His Son. And so that's what He begins doing in Revelation 6. He's the main character and the master conductor. That's what I'm saying here. Now, in the Gospels, we see the unveiling of Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah the prophet. We see him being rejected, mocked, spit on, finally crucified. In Revelation, we see a different picture of Jesus. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the conquering Lord. And it's said that every eye will see him one day, and those who have rejected him and ridiculed him will mourn. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the risen, glorified Son of God ministering among the churches. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And He's the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Now in Revelation we see God's program for the world and the end of the world. There's no doubt about who's in charge. God is. And He's going to rescue His children, judge His enemies, and pour out His wrath against them. He's going to wrap up human history according to His plan and all the kingdoms of the earth and all the armies of the earth will not be able to stop Him from wrapping up history as He so determines. He's sovereign God. He's going to defeat the devil once and for all. He's going to return things to how Genesis 1 and 2 had things, show how things could have been, before Satan entered the picture. And so it's kind of like Genesis 3 to Revelation 19 are a 6,000 year long pause in the flow of history from Genesis 2 to Revelation 20. You follow what I'm saying there? You could read Genesis 1 and 2 and then turn over to read Revelation 20 to 22 to see how God intends for things to be and how things are actually going to be. 
Genesis 3 through Revelation 19, of course, deal with man's sin and his need of redemption and the redemption that God provides in Christ. Now let me say as we go through the book, there's a great need for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Let's keep in mind, Revelation is part of the inspired Word of God. With the Holy Spirit as the author of Scripture, He's the one we need to rely on to teach us what it says. Now there's some special features of the book. As I said, it's the only major prophetic book in the New Testament. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 3 gives a special blessing to those who read it and those who hear it and act upon it. A third special feature of the book, there is a warning for those who add to or take away from it in chapter 22. Also in chapter 22 we see a fourth special feature. It's not a sealed book. Now you remember Daniel was told to seal up his prophecy and we're told there what was meant by that. What was meant he was to seal it up for it was going to be a long time in being fulfilled. But on the other hand, John is told not to seal up this book. The clear implication is that the events of Revelation are imminent. They're imminent. Could be soon. Another special feature of the book is visions and symbols. And a sixth special feature is that Revelation consummates and climaxes the great doctrines that we've already been introduced to in the Bible. One speaker, I think, gives a good analogy of this. It'd be like standing in the the major train station in Chicago, Illinois. Train tracks from all over the country coming into that train station. If you were in that train station, you'd see trains from Texas arriving from Florida, from California. We could name all types of places those trains would be coming into that Chicago hub from. Well, that's kind of how the book of Revelation is. Many of the other doctrines we're already introduced to in the other 65 books in the Bible in some way or another kind of come together and converge in Revelation. What are the themes in the book? Of course, as I've already mentioned, Jesus Christ, He's primary. The church, the resurrection and translation of the saints, the great tribulation, Satan, the man of sin, the end of the apostate church, the end of the times of the Gentiles, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom of the Lord, and Israel's covenants. We see that God is not done with Israel yet. Who are the major characters in the book? Well, there's the Lord Jesus. There's the great dragon that we'll be introduced to in chapter 12. There are the two beasts, one political, one religious. And there's the Antichrist. The general outline of the book, well, the book gives its own outline. Chapter 1, verse 19, we see a threefold division. He's told to write the things which thou hast seen. Most commentators say that's chapter 1. The vision John gets on that Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos, the vision of the glorified Christ, that's the things that are, uh, the, things that, uh, the things which thou hast seen. 
The things that are will be chapters 2 and 3. The churches. And the things that will be hereafter will be chapter 4 on. Now from chapter 4 on, we won't hear of the church again until the end of the book. Now I believe, like some interpreters, not everybody agrees with this. I want to be honest, okay? I want to be honest. Not everybody agrees with this. But I believe not hearing of the church again from chapter 4 until the end of the book signifies that the church isn't here anymore. I hope I'm right and you better hope I'm right. I hope we're not here for what begins taking place in chapter 6 and following. Okay? I, you know, as you read the book of Acts... Let me back up here and give a comparison. As you read the book of Acts, and Luke is writing the book of Acts, he's Paul's traveling companion, and all the events of the book of Acts are transpiring. Every now and then throughout the book of Acts, as we're seeing all those things go on, Luke will pause at certain stages through the book of Acts and give a little summary statement about the church. Have you ever noticed how he does that? He'll pause and there'll be four, five, six verses that he just gives a little status report of the church as the church is beginning to scatter out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and they're going out on their missionary journeys. I think it would be very odd in Revelation 6 and following as all hell is breaking loose on planet earth. If we were never told of the status of the church. I think you'd be odd. How, how's the church faring during these seals being broken. And these trumpets being blown. And the bowls of wrath being poured out. Poured out? How's the church doing? I would think God would tell us that if we were here. And so some interpreters say, from chapter 4 on, at least we hope, the church is taken out. Okay, some of the major ways of, some of the major ways or schools of interpretation today. Well, one that you don't find much anymore. Uh, You could probably find... A rare bird out there. I don't know of any personally. Uh, Postmillennialism. This was a very popular school of interpretation a hundred years ago, hundred plus years ago. Uh, they felt the church through missions was going to eventually win the world to Christ. People were going to get better and better and better and the church would usher in The millennial rule. When Christ came back in the second coming, we would basically hand over to him a Christianized planet. We'd make the world such a wonderful place to live and put down all evil that eventually we'd say to Jesus, here it is. Here it is. We've done it all for you. Well, two world wars, the Great Depression, the rise of communism uh, in the early 20th century pretty much destroyed 
post-millennial hopes. And besides, as the Bible points out, human nature is not getting better. It's getting worse. I think all along, post-millennialism was, not only is it not true to what we see in the world, I think it was unscriptural. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and following says, the last days are going to be perilous times. Men are going to go from bad to worse. The Bible doesn't say things are going to get better and better and better. <clears throat> well, despite that, you still hear politicians proclaiming the goodness of the human spirit. How through social programs with enough spending the world, we're going to make the world a better and better place. Folks, again, the Bible doesn't proclaim the goodness of the human spirit. It proclaims the depravity of the human spirit. I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the truth of the Bible. The Word of God points out we're not going to hand over to God heaven on earth. Well, pretty much post-millennialism faded away and they fled to another school of thought. Amillennialism. Now the amillennialists look at the book as merely being symbolic. It gives symbolic lessons in life of the conflict of good versus evil with good ultimately prevailing. They deny a literal millennial reign of Christ upon earth that we see, that we will see in chapter 20. That's why it's called amillennialism. In the Greek language, when you put the alpha, the A, in front of a word, what happens to that word? It negates it. For instance, who's a theist? A theist is somebody who what? Believes in God. Okay, you put the A in front of it, atheist, who's that? Person who says they don't believe in God. You just put the A in front of something and negate it. So amillennialism says that there's not going to be a millennial reign. At least not a literal millennial reign. They say that we're in the millennial reign of Christ right now. It's a spiritual reign. What happened in Acts chapter 1? Where did Jesus go? Jesus went up, right? Ascended back to the Father at the right hand of the throne of God. And so they would say from that point on, Jesus has been carrying out the millennial reign from heaven. And so we're in it right now. Well, certainly a major problem with this view is that chapter 20 states that Satan is bound during the millennial reign and not allowed to deceive the nations anymore. Now, I would say that if Satan is, is currently bound, God sure does have him on a long leash. <laughs> and as one person wisely said, if the devil is bound today, God help us if he ever gets loose. And the fact that, that in the passage they say is symbolic, there in Revelation 20, which deals with the millennium, he, he's not allowed to deceive the nations anymore. That doesn't fit with what we're seeing today. It seems like, if anything, 
deception and occult activity and all that on the increase, if anything. Now, another problem I have with amillennialism, and, and again, I, and I'm going to talk more about amillennialism in a minute because there are some very fine conservative scholars that are amillennialists. But a, another major problem I have with them is their hermeneutic. Her, hermeneutics is the, the science or the practice of biblical interpretation. Interpretive models. For instance, you don't look at Wisdom literature, the same as you look at didactic. Uh, James, for instance, would be didactic literature. Okay? Wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Psalm, you, you have to deal with those genres differently. Uh, you don't deal with a parable in the same way you deal with historical narrative. There are interpretive principles Hermeneutics is the study of those interpretive principles. Well, fortunately, for the most part, the amillennialist will say that when we read the Bible, we need to give the Bible the plain sense of its meaning. We need to study it in its grammatical, historical context and let it speak for itself. Now, to that, I would say a hearty amen. But then when you come to prophetic material or any kind of material, apocalyptic or dealing with eschatological matters, all of a sudden they'll switch up and then all of a sudden in place of their literal hermeneutic, they'll say, oh, it's now just you're just supposed to take it spiritually. Don't take it in its natural reading. Now, for instance, the amillennialist tends to erase any distinctions between Israel and the church. And, and they will quote Paul, how Paul refers to us now being the new Israel. The new Israel or the spiritual Israel of God. Well, certainly there's a sense in which the church is grafted into the olive tree and through Christ we become the recipients of God's promises in the Old Testament that through Abraham's descendants all the earth will be blessed. Certainly through Christ, Abraham's descendant according to the flesh, we are blessed. And so while I agree with them as far as the big picture is concerned, believing Gentiles and, and, and believing Jews become one body. I believe that. Jews and Gentiles, as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, that wall of partition torn down between them and Jews and Gentiles becoming one family in Christ. The big, the big aspect of that, yeah, I see where they're going with that. But folks, you cannot deny that while there is a merging of the two peoples of God in many passages, there are also places where it becomes quite apparent that God is not done with the Jew yet. And there are some distinct promises given to them. Romans 11 talks about at the end of the times of the Gentiles, God will stir the Jew to jealousy and a complete number of the Jews will be saved and the natural olive branch will be grafted into the olive tree. We're the wild thing. We're the wild olive branch. 
As Paul points out, the natural branch has been temporarily broken off. Most of Israel continues in unbelief until this day. It's been broken off that you, the wild olive branch, may be grafted in. But Paul says, oh, don't you be proud about that. Because God's going to do something one day to graft the natural branch back in. And he says, if you, the wild thing, have been grafted in, how much easier is it, God, is it for God to then take the natural olive branch and graft it back in? So very clearly distinctions being made there. And I dare you to make anything other than Jewish out of the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. I'm millennialist. This is where Grant Osborne, even though he's a historical premillennialist, he'll try to say the 144,000. Oh, that's just us. That's the new spiritual Israel. Now, you don't read Revelation chapter 7 and get that sense at all. It is a complete number of Israel being saved out of each of the 12 tribes. And so I don't personally feel that all millennialism does adequate justice to those texts that I believe maintain specific blessings to the Jew. But again, I want to say there are some very fine conservative scholars who are all millennialists. And if you're, if you're an all millennialist, you and I are not going to fight over that. We're just going to respectfully disagree. There are some very conservative Bible-believing scholars, some very respectable men who are all millennialist. Well, the next school of thought, premillennialism. This school of thought says that the second return of Christ is going to take place there at the Battle of Armageddon, or, or, or actually after that in, in Revelation chapter 19. He's going to defeat the nations of the world. He's going to then set up his millennial rule on earth. Now, that's the camp I fall into, and I would assume probably most of us in here do. But now let me say it gets more complicated than that because within the premillennial school of thought... We can break it down further. Okay? There's the pre-trib, pre-millennial perspective. And just be honest, I want you to know where I'm coming from. That's where I fall. Pre-trib, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. Now these are folks who believe God is going to rapture His church off the earth before the tribulation begins. And so in other words, between Revelation 4 and 19, the church is not on the earth. From Revelation 6 to 19, we see the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. And the pre-trib, pre-millennial person says that we're not here. Then there's the mid-trib, pre-millennial perspective. And there's kind of a new spin to that today. You may have read some about the pre-wrath rapture or, or mid-trib that before we, the church will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation and then be taken out before that last ferocious three and a half years of the tribulation. And then there's the post-trib premillennial perspective, also known as the historical premillennial viewpoint. 
Now, these are folks who believe God's going to allow the church to go through the entire tribulation and it'll have a cleansing effect upon the church. And so post-tribbers say there's not going to be a rapture. Now, post-tribbers still believe in the second coming of Christ, okay? They still believe in the second coming of He comes and He sets up His thousand-year millennial reign. They still believe that. They just simply take the rapture out of the equation. And they leave us here during the seven-year tribulation. Now, again, a very popular position today uh, among Bible-believing conservative scholars. Very fine scholars hold that position. Again, I'm not one of them, but very respectable writers with that viewpoint. And so what I'm saying is conservative Bible-believing scholars can be found in the amillennial camp as well as in all forms of the premillennial camp. Now let me begin wrapping this up tonight. Let me emphasize Revelation is a book that does two things. Number one, it exalts the Lord Jesus, His control of human history. Secondly, it is a book of eschatology. It shows that He wins, and guess what? Because He wins, we win if we're in Christ. That's two major themes we'll see. Now, let me address the, this latter element a minute, eschatology. Don't sit at Hardy's in the morning arguing with people about being amillennial or pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. Eschatology has never been used as a test of orthodoxy. Now, you do want to hear from them that they believe at least in the second coming of Christ. Okay? But whether they're pre-trib or mid-trib or post, I'm not going to argue with them about that. Now, if somebody wants to argue the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, the inerrancy of Scripture, the second coming of Christ, I tell you what, we'll argue those essential doctrines. Okay? Because if they don't believe that, boy, we've got something to we've got something to confront them about. But let's not argue the details of, of eschatology. Because the more you study it, I tell you, you'll see that there's a little bit of wiggle room between some of the positions. Well, let's close out tonight by having two things happen. First of all, let's allow the book of Revelation to help us fall in love in a fresh way with its main character, Jesus Christ. And let's allow the book of Revelation uh, to help us see in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ has His hand on the pulse rate of the world. He's guiding the pulse rate. He's wrapping things up according to His design. And so we have the assurance that if he can direct human history from beginning to end, guess what? He can surely take care of me. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Don't be anxious 
about what you're going to eat and drink and put on and, and all this stuff that the Gentiles, the unbelievers are worried about. So many people stay up wringing their hands about. Don't you worry about that. If you believe that God created you, loved you, and is able to save you, don't you think God can take care of those who, sa- who He saves? If He can take care of human history, and He's bringing it along to His desired conclusion... He can look after little old me. Okay? So keep that in mind.